please take your Bibles and open them to Isaiah 52. We're going to spend the next 20 minutes or so considering the suffering servant of Isaiah. So Isaiah doesn't know the name Jesus Christ in his prophetic work, but he speaks of a servant who's coming. It's the Lord's servant, Yahweh's servant. And as, as, as you lead into Isaiah 53, chapter 52, for the most part, is, is giving hope to Israel. Israel had been um, ravaged by war. The Assyrian army had come through, wrecked the whole nation, held the city of Jerusalem hostage for, for such a long period of time that starvation was so severe um, that at, at, at points they turned to cannibalism. God rescues Israel, but the nation is devastated, right? It's ravaged. And God promises there's going to be a restoration. So when you come to chapter 52, uh, Pastor Mike had read from verse 13 on. But when you look at chapter 52, for instance, in in verse 9, he's talking about Israel's going to break forth in singing. The waste places of Jerusalem are going to be restored. The Lord has comforted his people. He's redeemed Jerusalem. He's bared his holy arm, his arm of rescue. And the whole earth will see the salvation that's from our God. And so he says, go out, cleanse yourselves, purify yourselves, um, get ready the vessels because the Lord is coming. And then he says, and this is going to be done by the servant in chapter 52 and 53, introduce the servant, okay? So we're going to look at that, that, that servant. It's going to introduce for us who is this servant of the Lord who's going to bring about the rescue of Israel. Chapter 52, verse 13, introduces the Lord's opinion of this servant. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up. He shall be exalted. Now that's the Lord's opinion. For the next verses, all the way until we get to chapter 53, Halfway through verse 11, the Lord is silent, and now we kind of have a perspective change. We look at how people respond to the servant and how he's treated and his activity. So how is he, how is he responded um, by, by the people? As many were astonished, that word is appalled, at you. His appearance was also so marred. And here would be the point. Israel's ravaged. If people visited Israel on a tourism trip after Syria was done, they would gasp in horror at the destruction. Likewise, they're appalled when they see Jesus. His form is so marred, it, it, it doesn't even look like man anymore. And by doing this, he will sprinkle many nations. And kings will be silenced because of his amazing work. But the general response in in verse 1 of chapter 53, who believed? The arm of rescue has been revealed. But who believed? And the question lands poorly. Verse 2, he grew up before him like a plant out of dry ground. Plants don't grow well out of dry ground. And so the Messiah comes and people generally don't accept him. He's not gloriously accepted. He's in fact weak. 
like a plant in dry ground. He comes up like a little withered plant. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. In fact, he was despised. He was rejected by men. He was a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised. And we had no regard for him. We did not value him. Is how scripture describes our reception of the Messiah as humanity. Look at the Lord's opinion. He will act wisely. He will be exalted. How do we receive him? We look at the Messiah and we recognize his his mission is to suffer as God's servant. He suffers rejection by his people. There are a few things that damage us more deeply than the injuries we receive from people who hurt us relationally. Probably the most severe wounds that you will ever remember in your life are not those done to you in a fistfight in school, but the rejection of a friend, the betrayal of someone you thought loved you and was loyal to you, even the injuries of a spouse who truly loves you but still is just a sinner. Those wounds cut deepest. Jesus comes to his own, John says, his own did not receive him. Jesus Christ was a man rejected. He's a man acquainted with grief. God did not send the Messiah to be a man of beauty and personal glory that we would look on him and love him because of his beauty and glory. But in fact, he came weak, like a plant out of dry ground. And we did not value him. In fact, we rejected him. And as a human race, we killed him. Right? So let me ask you, why do we, why do we consider the cost of, to this suffering servant. What is the value in it? Well, I think there's at least this value, that recognizing that the work of Christ is our singular hope of salvation, we should remember it's not merely the work done on the cross, but a whole entire life of suffering and obedience by which he redeems us. Right? He was a suffering servant, not just a dying servant who died in the moments on the cross, but his whole entire life was a sacrifice of obedience and righteousness by which he suffered for our sakes. In fact, as you look in verses 4 through 6, and this will be the, kind of the central motif of, of, of this prophetic work here, where Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the suffering servant, is presented as the atoning sacrifice. Well, what is an atoning sacrifice? What is atonement? Well, if we just consider atonement to be that work by which we deal with and, and um, restore someone or something from injury. For instance, if I borrow your car and I'm messing around and not paying attention and I break a window, if I am to atone for it, I would pay for the window. And, and now it would be me atoning for the wrong. I'd, I'd replace it, fully restore it, make sure it was, you know, to manufacture specs. I wouldn't replace it with some chink, you know, chintzy thing from like Amazon and, you know, it doesn't work right. You know, try to, it would be an equal thing, right? Like I restore it by, by an equal price and I pay. But a vicarious atonement is one by which the injured party takes care of that restitution. And in this case, the injured party is God and you'll see that God is the one who puts on the suffering servant the iniquities of the people. 
right? So, so atoning work is done by the restoration, the righting of a wrong. It could be done by the party that does the wrong. But in this case, you see very clearly that the, the prophecy points out how clearly the suffering servant is doing the atoning work for someone else, not himself. Not only that, you'll notice that this section of Scripture, let me read it, focuses significantly on pain. Right? Like, there's a lot of pain. In fact, we just talked about beholding this, this, this work. And, and if you were listening to this song, there's an element of joy in this song, and we're talking about the wonders of this this work, and it's kind of horrific, honestly. Right? Can you imagine standing there at the cross and feeling any sense of joy? And yet we know that the cross is the atoning work that saves us from our sins. So we, 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 we now have joy. Look at verse 4 with me. And, and again, I want to just kind of punch the words of pain so you hear them. Surely he has borne our griefs. That's the word for sicknesses. He carried our sorrows and pains. That's the point. We esteemed him, stricken, smitten by God, afflicted. In fact, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. It was the chastisement. That word is punishment that brought us peace. And it is his wounds by which we are healed. Because ultimately, at the end of verse 6, the Lord laid on him our iniquities. You see this intense focus on suffering, pain, wounds, and injury. Uh, W.G.T. Shedd says this, The essence of the atonement is the suffering. The atoning bull or ram must bleed, must agonize, and die. And the, the one who offers it must not get any enjoyment or personal benefit out of it. It must be a total loss to him. So far forth, a, suffer, uh, a suffering that is for him. So the sacrificer must not eat any of the trespass offering. The sin offering must be wholly burnt, skin and flesh and dung. In harmony with this, the Lord lays stress upon his own suffering as the essential element in his atoning work. Scripture says in Matthew 16, 21, the Son of Man must suffer. So we read in Isaiah 53, griefs and sorrows, he's stricken, he's smitten, he's afflicted, he's pierced, he's crushed, he's punished, he's wounded. But that's not all it says. Notice the the, the preposition for and, and how the pronouns ours are laid in this text. For instance, it's our griefs, it's our sorrows. It's our iniquities. It's chastisement that brought us peace. And it's our iniquities, the iniquities of us all that are laid on him. This emphasis is clear in the New Testament. I'm going to read several passages from the New Testament just to press this point. Christ died for us. He suffered for us. Mark 10, 45, For even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life, as a ransom for many. Luke twenty two nineteen through 20. He took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after he had eaten, 
And he passed the cup and he said, this is the cup poured out for you. John 6, 51. He says, I am the living bread come down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The bread he gives for the life of the world is my flesh, he says. John 15, 13. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life. Can you finish it? For his friends. Romans 5, 7 and 8 ends with Christ died for us. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. The love of Christ controls us because we've concluded this, that one has died for all. Therefore, all have died. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse by becoming a curse for us. Ephesians 5.2, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Yeah, you're hearing it, aren't you? How many times the New Testament presses the point, the atoning work of Christ was a suffering, agonizing death for us. 1 Timothy 2.6, he gave himself a ransom for all. Hebrews 2.9, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. 1 Peter 3.18, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Galatians 1, 3 through 5, grace to you and peace from God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil. 1 John 4, 9 through 10, in this is love, in this the love of God was manifest among us. God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins sins. See, this is, this is the work of atonement that Isaiah 53 presses on us. Christ died for our transgressions. His wounds are for our sins. I don't know if you caught the way it describes our sin nature, but it's compelling because we have a tendency to describe others as sinners and maybe we excuse ourselves, but verse 6 indicts all of us. It says, all, like sheep, have gone astray. That may not seem very bad. He continues, we've turned everyone to his own way. So here's the essence of sin. It's not just pure evil. It is merely, which is probably the wrong word to use, but it feels like this is how we should think. We minimize this simple thought. We wander away from God and do our own thing. That is the height of rebellion and sin. Right? Like, like sheep, we've gone our own way. God does not have to make much of a case to prove the point that we do our own thing. I can remember growing up and hearing my dad, I can still like hear the echo, bad dog, when he's scolding a dog for not coming, for merely not obeying and submitting to his master. Then you can see that same condemnation here, not because we're all murderers. We're not all the moral equivalent of Hitler. God says that here's the measure and the standard by which you are 
full of iniquity, you've gone your own way. Period. That doesn't feel very bad. I don't feel very guilty about going my own way. I feel like my own way is pretty good. I feel like God should be okay with me going my own way. And yet God's condemnation is clear. I must have atonement merely for rejecting his leadership and not submitting and obeying. So can I just really clearly plead with those of you who think you're good? You are not good unless you go God's way. Unless you submit to him, obey him, and follow him, you are not good. You deserve the condemnation Christ took. Christ is condemned to atone for sins, and all those who trust him are atoned for. Christ makes restitution, pays that full price, suffers grief, suffers the the punishment that is our due in our place for us. And what did we do to deserve this horrific condemnation? Like sheep, we went our own way. And that iniquity was laid on him. Initially, the suffering servant is rejected. Then the suffering servant is punished for our sins. Finally, you'll see the suffering servant suffers injustice. I debated with this one being innocent or injustice. He is innocent, and therefore he suffers unjustly. Verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. That word oppression there probably speaks of him being taken captive, like a prisoner. So maybe you could read it this way. By imprisonment and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. Uh, This section starts with this thought, he opened not his mouth. And then later in the section, in the end of verse 9, there was no deceit in his mouth. That Christ did not defend himself. The Messiah does not feel the need to declare his own innocent, and yet he was innocent. It was injustice by which he was killed. He opened not his mouth. He was silent. It was by wicked imprisonment and false condemnation that he was taken away and cut off out of the land of the living. He was consigned in verse 9 to be associated with the wicked and with the wicked rich. That's what we said. Do you remember Yahweh's assessment at the beginning of this whole text? My servant will act wisely. He will be high and exalted. What was our treatment of him? despised, rejected. We considered him condemned by God, and so he was, but it was for our sins, our transgressions, our, our wickedness that caused his piercing, his bruising, his crushing, his beating, his crucifixion, his whipping, his bloody, violent, agonizing death, and that's how atonement happens. Suffering 
to atone for sins perfectly. Scripture is clear, Christ was innocent. He didn't defend himself. And it was unjust. It was wickedness by which we crucified the Lamb of glory. But yet, God's people are redeemed by this very act. This is how we are atoned for. Is God sends his servant that we reject it. God sends his servant and lays on him the iniquities. And wicked sinners are the instrument by which he suffers. But the ultimate actor is God acting in mercy for you. Because right? this, is, this is the glory of the mercy of God. You and I deserve that punishment. You and I deserve to be rejected by all, particularly God himself. We deserve the agony of the cross. We deserve the suffering. We deserve to be beat, bruised, consigned to eternal condemnation. We deserve to be condemned and imprisoned forever. Instead, God sends his servant, and he accomplishes that for us. Why is this so worth considering? Why is it worth 2,000 years later taking time and just resting in the suffering of Christ for a moment? I'm going to read this quote. This is by Shed, the same author I quoted earlier. He says this, the human conscience is the mirror of the divine attribute of justice. The two are correlated. What therefore God's justice demands, man's conscience also demands. Nothing, says Matthew Henry, can pacify an offended conscience, but that which satisfies an offended God. The peace which the believer in Christ's atonement enjoys and which is promised by the Redeemer to the believer, is the subject of experience in man that corresponds to the objective reconciliation in God. The pacification of our conscience is the consequence of the satisfaction of divine justice. God's justice is completely satisfied for our sins by the death of Christ. This is an accomplished fact Jesus Christ, the righteous, is the propitiation for the sins of the world, 1 John 2, 2. The instant any individual man in this world believes that divine justice is thus satisfied, his conscience is at rest. I hope you tracked that. Like, our conscience can be in such turmoil because we are, we're bad people sometimes. I mean, even the simple stuff by which we, we, we tell a story and give ourselves a little more glory by being dishonest or find a little bit of joy in the pride of it. Or perhaps when questioned, we shade the truth to avoid looking dumb because sometimes we're just dumb. Or maybe angry words flit out of our mouth and we try to manage the world around us by, by, by pushing people around a little bit. Perhaps our tongues are a little too loose and we injure friends with gossip. Our conscience knows. So where does your conscience find rest? It is by the contemplation that the atonement is fact. It's by the firm belief that all of your sins have been atoned for in Jesus Christ. So that as 1 John says, if our hearts condemn us, 
He is greater. So if God in heaven says, you are innocent, you are forgiven, your sins have been atoned for, your conscience must agree by faith. So consider Christ. It should stir us to caution. How do you know you're going your own way? How do you know you're not going your own way? It is by a careful commitment to knowing Scripture and applying it to every area of life. The blind man does not know what he does not see. I think a lot of Christians are spiritually blind. They don't even know where they're sinning. It's not because they have hearts that want sin. They have hearts that simply just don't see the sin they're sinning. So how do you make sure you're not a sheep blindly wandering away from the sweet shepherd? You must listen to his voice in the living word of God. And so the atonement teaches us to be thirsty, to know our Lord and know his word and to drink deeply from the springs of life in its text. The atonement of Christ leads us to hope in the resurrection. This is a text that's about the atonement. It doesn't end with the death of Christ. It ends with the hope of the resurrection. But that is for Sunday. So Sunday, we're going to come back and finish Isaiah 53 and talk about the resurrection. Until then, Look to the cross so that your conscience be clear. Consider the cost of merely being a good man who is actually just a wandering sheep. Who's actually sinning by not submitting to the shepherd and walking with him. Scripture says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. If you're not following Jesus Christ, then the hope of the atonement is not yet yours. So here's how 1 Peter would say it. Let me just open back my Bible and just read 1 Peter to you because it, he quotes Isaiah 53 four times. It says, For to this you've been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Did you hear Isaiah in there? For you are straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Is Christ your shepherd? Have you walked with him? Do you obey him? Do you follow his voice? Christ died to return you to him. I hope you're walking with him. Can we conclude in a word of prayer together? Father in heaven, you are so kind and so merciful. You so loved the world that you sent your son That his death might give life to all who believe so that they might never perish but have everlasting life. Everyone who believes will never be put to shame. 
All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Father, we have this certain and secure hope that all of the promises of Scripture have already been paid for by Jesus Christ. We have every confidence that our conscience has been cleared by the work of Christ. So, Lord, I pray that you would apply the work of Christ to our hearts, that our consciences would feel cleansed, that our hearts would, with faith, know they are clean through and through. Lord, help us to cling to Christ with hearts filled with faith and love toward him. And I ask that you would give us a church family that follows the voice of their shepherd faithfully. In the name of Jesus, for his sake and for his glory, amen.